Stephen L. Robinson was a Western Union telegraph operator working in Chicago in 1871. Back then, Robinson's job was incredibly important because the telegraph was the only way to instantly communicate the news. Robinson, like around 100,000 others, had just lost his house in what would soon be called the Great Chicago Fire. As soon as it was safe, he grabbed a pencil and a printed map of what had been Chicago and walked the length of the fire's path. His aim? To note any buildings that had survived the fire. I'm Curious City producer Jason Mark, and this week we're marking the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire by walking a part of that charred path Stephen Robinson walked a century and a half ago. And we're going to hear about some buildings that Robinson noted on his map with some help from historian Paul DeRica. And he's joining me now to talk about what's coming up. Hi, Paul. Hi, Jason. Well, Curious City has received a lot of questions about the fire over the years, including several people who have asked us about what actually survived the Great Chicago Fire. Yes, there were actually a number of buildings that survived, which Stephen Robinson documented. Wait, when I was a kid, we were taught two things about the fire. Mrs. O'Leary's cow started it by kicking over a lantern, and everything in the whole town burned down except one building, the water tower. Yeah, and that's what most people are taught. But number one, the whole cow thing, it's been debunked. In an era of anti-Irish sentiment, Catherine O'Leary was an easy scapegoat for the press and the public to pin the blame on. And number two, the idea that the whole town burned down ignores a simple fact. Chicago's boundaries didn't match the fire's path. Yes, Chicago was a young city, but it was growing rapidly. And by 1871, it had a west and a south side that were left largely undamaged by the fire. Hmm, so that's a decent chunk of territory we're talking about. Is there anything still around today in those areas that we can see? Yes, lots of houses, churches, old factory buildings. But I'll give you two landmarks most Chicagoans know. Hall House on the west side, which was built by Charles Hall in 1856. Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr didn't open their settlement house there until 1889. And the Union Stockyards, which had opened on the south side Christmas Day 1865. All right, wait. So if it missed all these other parts of the city, where exactly did the fire burn? The path of the fire ran from Roosevelt Road up to Fullerton Avenue and from the lake west to just a little past the Chicago River. The fire actually started west of the river, jumped at once, spread north and east, and jumped the river a second time to devastate the north side. Okay, but if we just stick to the burned out parts, surely... Right, the water tower is the sole survivor. It became this rallying point around which Chicagoans rebuilt their city. It's this civic symbol of resilience. Yeah, well, it's true that the water tower became a major symbol of the city, but it wasn't the only structure in the fire zone to survive. Luckily, we have Robinson's list, and I'm going to tell you about one on the list and two that didn't make this list, but I promise you their stories are fascinating and worth hearing. And we'll also find out why Unlike the water tower, those buildings aren't around anymore. And what that tells us about how Chicagoans have viewed our history and ourselves. Great. That's all coming up next. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. 
This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. The most notable structure on Stephen Robinson's map was the Ogden House. Malin Ogden was a prominent lawyer and the brother of William Butler Ogden, who served as the city's first mayor. You might know the name Ogden from the high school in West Town or Ogden Avenue, which runs from the near west side all the way out to Aurora. Not only was William Butler Ogden the first mayor, he made a fortune in real estate and railroads, investments he brought his brother into when Malin moved to Chicago. And by 1871, Malin Ogden was living with his second wife and three children in a two-story mansion, just north of the fashionable Washington Square Park. The park still exists today at Clark and Walton on the near north side. Malin Ogden and his family weren't at home when the fire struck. Their house was saved thanks to the efforts of some guests staying there, and presumably the family servants. The open space of Washington Square Park slowed the fire's advance, while those inside took everything made of cloth, curtains, carpets, blankets, sheets, soaked them in well water, and then cider from the cellar. Even hard cider, in case you're curious, is inflammable. Then they wrapped the outside of the house like a mummy and waited out the flames. When the fire had passed and eventually was extinguished by the rain that fell on October 9th, Washington Square Park lay in ruins. Its majestic elm trees had been reduced to ash. Its elegant iron fencing had melted into large, tangled lumps. But the Ogden House stood unscathed. The Tribune reported, quote, The house of Mr. Malin D. Ogden on Dearborn and Lafayette Place was not even scorched. In the days following, tents began to appear in Washington Square Park, as refugees from the fire took up temporary residence there. Outside help arrived, but so did those who saw opportunity amid the ruins. People photographed the Ogden House and turned the images into stereoscope cards that were sold all across the country. In fact, Chicagoans began to explore the city and take photos almost immediately after the blaze died down. And people from other cities visited as well, touring the smoldering wreckage as if they were looking at the ruins of ancient Greece or Rome. More than two decades later, readers of the Chicago Tribune opened up the October 9, 1893 edition and were gifted with a full-color illustration of the Ogden House. The accompanying text proclaimed, quote, as the sole survivor on the north side, it will always be famous. This was the year of the world's Columbian Exposition, and October 9th was Chicago Day at the World's Fair. The special ticket for that day included an illustration of the mythical phoenix rising from the flames, for that was how Chicago saw itself 22 years after the fire, a city reborn. But Chicagoans wouldn't have been able to see the Malin Ogden House on that day. Soon after the fire, Ogden suffered financial reversals, and the trustees of the Newberry Estate saw an opportunity to snatch up some valuable land. 
they tore down the Ogden House and erected, to quote the 1893 Tribune article again, the magnificent new Newberry Library building. Yes, it's true. It's where I work. Although that same article called it, quote, the one distinctive mark of the greatest conflagration of all time, there were no protests when the Ogden House came down. The public's ideas about what was important and worth saving were different back then. And as the article goes on to say, quote, in Chicago, all things change. As we head north on Stephen Robinson's map, we arrive in Lincoln Park. And this next building is a survivor of the fire, but not in the way you might think. The owner called it, quote, an American curiosity, and it was curious indeed. It was called the Relic House, because every brick and stone, every piece of melted glass and twisted metal that formed the walls had been salvaged from the ruins of the fire. It was a Frankenstein's monster of a building, made up of the bits and pieces of at least 20 others. For 10 years, the house seems to have been a private home. Then it was sold and moved to where it became a saloon. Various everyday objects that survived the fire hung on its walls. A large painting depicting the fire reminded visitors of the scale of the disaster. While the phrase wouldn't have been used at the time, the relic house was a tourist trap. In 1920, the Relic House was taken over by Dr. Ben L. Reitman. Reitman was an interesting man. He was an iconoclast who ran in bohemian circles. It was the 1920s, and Reitman promoted birth control and STD awareness, attended to the medical needs of the homeless, and even performed abortions before they were legal. After getting tossed out of an infamous hipster hideaway known as the Dill Pickle Club, Reitman founded what he called the House of Blazes. The Tribune proclaimed, quote, Poetry in the Relic House? Verse flowing where good beer foamed since Lincoln Park was a grassy plot? The House of Blazes lasted only a few months, and the Relic House lasted only a few more years. In February 1929, it was torn down, along with many of the surrounding buildings, to little fanfare. It was a victim of gentrification. The neighborhood was changing. The land was valuable, and a large apartment building with commercial space on the first level took its place. That building still stands and counts among its tenants another Chicago institution, one that mirrors the bric-a-brac aesthetic of the old relic house, R.J. Grunts. Up next, we follow Robinson's map to the biggest building on our tour and the only one left standing after the fire in the area we call The Loop. We'll be right back. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, 
and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. As we head south once more, we come to the largest and longest surviving structure that could have appeared on Stephen Robinson's map had he walked that far. It's called the Lindblock. It stood at the northwest corner of what is now Randolph Street and Wacker Drive. The five-story building was built by Sylvester Lind in the 1850s. Lind owned a lumber yard on the site, and his fleet of boats were tied just below the building, right on the river. But the boats Lind owned carried more than lumber. Lind was a staunch abolitionist and a key member of the Underground Railroad in Chicago. It's been written that escaped enslaved people would board one of his boats on the docks near the Lind Block and then sail from Chicago to freedom in Canada. By the fall of 1871, the year of the fire, Lind had sold the building and the five floors of the Lind Block released to Z.M. Hall wholesale grocers. Zebulon Hall had come from the East, got a job as a bookkeeper, saved what he earned, and eventually invested in the ships that hauled grain across the Great Lakes. When the Great Fire started, Hall, his two sons, and the clerks from the firm fought back the flames. Water was hauled up in buckets from the river, and, like the Ogden House in our first story, blankets, curtains, and cloths were soaked and wrapped around the exterior. Later, Hall gained use of a small pump that made the river more accessible as he and his sons took to the roof. From there, they worked through the night to save the five-story building, while all around them, what is today the loop, burned. As one of the only commercial buildings left standing after the fire, the Lindeblock became a place of refuge. For three days, Hall freely gave away what had been in his grocery to fellow Chicagoans made homeless and destitute by the fire. Now, a connection to the Great Fire and the Underground Railroad should have made a good case for saving the Lindblock. But in a Tribune article in January 1963 titled, Oldest Building in Loop Succumbs to Progress, writer Will Leonard lamented the building's disappearance. Quote, the snow of 111 winters had melted on the Lindblock's roof. The sunshine of 110 summers warmed its walls. Leonard went on to say, quote, A few years ago, an officer of the engineering firm that owned the oldest building in downtown Chicago said proudly, It'll be here another hundred years. Today, they are tearing it down. Leonard seems to have been the only voice of protest. In 1968, five years after the Lind Block was torn down, the Commission on Chicago Landmarks was formed. These days, the Commission and nonprofit organizations like Preservation Chicago work to preserve buildings like the Lind Block, which tell important pieces of Chicago's history. But why didn't anyone cry out in defense of these buildings years ago? Well, maybe the water tower, all massive bricks and spires, might fit the story we want to tell about ourselves better than the Ogden Mansion the Relic House, or the Lindblok. Or maybe its survival is just a happy accident. The poet Carl Sandburg, who owns several stereoscope cards of the ruins from the Great Chicago Fire, once wrote Chicago is always, quote, building, breaking, rebuilding, 
or, more simply, as the October 1893 article on the Ogden House put it, quote, in Chicago, all things change. As for Stephen Robinson's map, it was donated to the Chicago Historical Society, today's Chicago History Museum, on the 90th anniversary of the fire, where, presumably, it survives. Thanks to Paul DeRica, Director of Exhibitions at the Newberry Library, for that reporting. This episode was produced as part of a collaboration between Curious City and the Newberry Library. And speaking of collaborations, we need your help. We're interested in hearing about your experience with Curious City and would love for you to take our listener feedback survey. This will help us learn more about you and to make the show better. Plus, you'll be entered for a chance to win a $50 gift card. Go to wbez.org slash curious survey. That's wbez.org slash curious survey. Curious City is produced by me, Jason Mark, and Joe Dassault. Maggie Sivet is our digital and engagement producer. Sophia Lowe is our intern, and Alexandra Solomon edits the show. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.